everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution. I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Hope that you got to spend that day with friends and family that you love. Um, I am coming to you per usual from Waco, Texas, where if you can believe it, we actually have some cold weather coming through. So it feels very festive and very autumnal and uh, I'm loving it. I am really excited to bring to you our conversation today and introduce our guests to you. Before I jump in, I just want to give one quick technical note about our last episode with Alicia Locke. There was a bit of a technical glitch with her episode and some folks listening to it, I believe on Podbean, may have heard a different recording than the one we actually produced. We still don't know what happened, but we fixed it. So I just want to encourage you that if you tried to listen to that episode and were a little bit thrown off to go back, give it another shot. It should be all cleaned up because Alicia is awesome. And I think our conversation has many great, just insightful observations that I hope can be encouraging and inspiring to you. So today's guest is Justin LaFont. He is the executive director and co-founder of Front Yard Bikes in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He works with youth around the city, training them in a variety of practical skills, including bike repair, gardening, and welding. Since 2010, they've worked with more than 3,000 young adults, and the organization just continues to grow, providing hopeful pathways for young adults and his city as they prepare for adulthood. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk with you. How was your Thanksgiving? Always wonderful. I always have uh, great Cajun meals and food and so many delicious things. So, and a lot of good family time with my kids. So just, just really nice to slow down and share. So what is Cajun Thanksgiving like from the food side? I'm, I'm curious about this. Do you all cook like traditional Thanksgiving food or do you have your own thing? Oh, there's special things. And I mean, it's, it's basically like everybody's Thanksgiving, uh, except it's better. Um, it's got some great seasoning obviously, but there's gumbos, there's, uh, you know, fried turkeys, there's, um, uh, crab bisque, you know, there's so many delicious things, crawfish etouffee, a lot of different seafoods put into, you know, a lot of delicious, uh, desserts and treats and just great. And you just love it. That sounds Um, wonderful. We do. Yep. It is wonderful. And I, I haven't been in town for the last few, so it was awesome to slow down and be home. That's right. So you work and live in Baton Rouge now, but that's but you're actually from Homa. Did I say that correctly? That's right. Homa, okay. Louisiana. So your family has has deep roots in Louisiana. Can you tell us about where you're from and how you came to, to Baton Rouge? And I'd also just love to know more about your upbringing and, and how that kind of brought you to where you are now with this, um, this uh, life of service. Yes, yeah, so I'm from Homa, Louisiana, uh, named after the Homa Nation, which is a native tribe um, that does not have federal recognition and state recognition. And um, we have a lot of, uh, I guess, diversity of Cajun people, some still French speakers and um, live very close to uh, the Bayou and Water region, which is deeper south in Terrebonne Parish. I was fortunate to have a family that always had a goal of college education and after I took a stint at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, I transferred to finish out my degree in history at LSU here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And during that time, just became socially aware to all the issues and challenges that still face a lot of people in our state. I became very interested in uh, Louisiana civil rights history 
and through that research, learn that there's still so much that hasn't been done, that hasn't come to fruition for our community society to really turn, you know, to a new chapter of um, opportunity and accessibility, you know, for all and really creating the equity necessary for our community members who live still so close in proximity to uh, a lot of resources, but still don't have that access. So tell me a little bit about your family growing up. Yes. Yeah, so I'm one of five kids. Uh, my mother's from home, Louisiana. My father's even further south from Grand Isle, Louisiana. And um, we always grew up very close. You know, it's a big family, so everything's shared. You don't really get anything too much that's just yours. Um, but it's kind of the special thing about always being busy and active and going places to everyone's sports games and basketball and soccer. And um, I went to a small school where my siblings went. Uh, and I also got to go to the same church with them all the time. So always at all the church activities, always at all the uh, events and things that we did together. Um, very close knit family. And what kind of became the string that really kept us all together growing up was this goal of community service. You know, my mother was a teacher uh, teaching special needs kids and then growing into administration as a principal in an even more remote um, region called Ponachan, which has a native tribe still working for their recognition and working to be a uh, strong community. And uh, she always taught about giving back and being supportive and helping out and lending a hand wherever you can. Obviously, that norm carries over to every storm we've ever faced to know that you're going to need your neighbors. You know, nobody is going to be able to be isolated in this community. It's why a lot of our food traditions of uh, red beans and rice and gumbo and jambalayas are large meals to share. Um, so that if you can have something left over in the pot, we call that lanyap. You got to share it. You got to lend it to somebody else. It's a good thing. And it builds a good community where you know you have that village that uh, will be there when you need them. And hopefully you can be there for them. So it sounds like um, the culture of where you grew up is not only distinct in that way, having a really strong theme of hospitality, um, but also kind of what you were mentioning about cleaning up after the storm, also this theme of resilience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, there's nothing else you can do sometimes except, you know, realize we have to press on and um, lean on your neighbors, lean on your faith and uh, just give everything you have. So um, tell us a bit about Baton Rouge. What makes it unique? What, what would you say are some of its challenges? Baton Rouge is the capital city. And that means everyone in the state looks to it for a lot of the answers for some of our challenges. And it's also the, the place that celebrates all of our successes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of excitement around our athletics and sports and music and um, celebrations, Mardi Gras, so many really cool things that Baton Rouge takes on and champions, um, but it also faces the issues of uh, racism and poverty and hunger and, um, you know, lacking equity, education, all the same things that a lot of our state deals with. It's magnified in the capital city because it is a focus point of where everyone comes to discuss and debate and ideally come together for solutions, come together to make resolutions and make uh, laws and acts that can get us somewhere. And sometimes they don't always happen. We've, we've kind of had a history where our most famous governor, Huey P. Long, was one of the most corrupt people uh, 
maybe ever, <laughs> but it kind of becomes also a signal of how power can be uh, utilized and learning about how those things can be transformed into not being just, you know, destructive, but has to be shared and make a difference. So Baton Rouge is a resilient place. It's a creative place. There's an ingenuity here. There's a desire to break the mold and do something different, do something new and transpire to communicate that to where it makes an impact statewide. So I can imagine as being um, a city and even a state associated with a lot of hurricanes and storms, there's kind of two sides to that one. Like I know Baton Rouge struggles with a lot of poverty, but on the other side, there's this um, can do sort of creative spirit and spirit of resilience it sounds like as well oh absolutely there's always ingenuity is making do with less trying to be creative and um trying to identify what can we make with you know things that maybe uh we don't have the right thing for it but we can do something by it and um that that obviously is a character of everybody in the state and everybody who kind of grows up in poverty and has to have that creativity to get by what would you say are the biggest challenges right now that the city is is trying to work through? I would say access to some of the great resources we have, which comes in the hand of transportation and it comes to the hand of um, breaking down the barriers that are there for education, for economic opportunity, get certain jobs that are in close proximity to where we all live and, and, and grow and play. Um, we have some great industry here. Uh, we have some great companies and just trying to get through that wall of expectations so that the people who live close to them can get in. And so that comes in the hands of uh, building bikes to get people on their first you know, way to get from A to B. And a lot of times having a resume that you've worked somewhere, got some experience somewhere, got some skills somewhere, and really have someone who's willing to sign off on your name, that you'd be a valuable asset for someone else in their company. Yeah, this gets me excited to talk about Front Art Bikes because I know a little bit about what y'all are, are doing there. And it sounds like one of the roles you're filling is really this bridge building role of like helping young adults bridge that gap, whether it's a resume gap, a skills gap, or even a transportation gap, so they can access the resources that are available in their in their city. Um, but let's let's get there. So you moved to Baton Rouge for college and then your your professional career started off in education. Um, can you tell us about your journey from teaching sixth grade to starting Front Yard Bikes? Yes. And, you know, even before that, I was going into AmeriCorps with City Year, and I really wanted to give back and be in my community this, the same way of a mentor or tutor would be when I was growing up um, for a kid maybe who doesn't have that. And while there, I met uh, a kid who was at a community garden where we're all working, and he had a bike that was broken, and everybody just kind of knew me for being someone who rode uh, often throughout the city for transportation, but also because I didn't want to put gas in an expensive uh, Jeep that I drove. I said, I'm going I'm to ride my bike there to save some money. Um, fell in love with it. And um, he came to my house to fix his bike. It was impossible. His bike was, he was riding on a rim with no tire or inner tube. He had spokes going everywhere. Uh, all we could do for that bike was, you know, bury it and say a prayer because that bike was toast. It was bad. But I had an old bike that was kind of in pieces and needed a little bit of work and it was his size. And so I wanted to make a deal with him that he could earn that bike by learning how to use the tools that I had, taking my knowledge, but putting his hands to do the work. 
uh, really want to keep that moral or, or value of, of teaching a man to fish and not just giving him a fish so they can eat for a day, but really have a life skill or life investment. So we did that. It took us a few days. He rode off. I felt great about it. Thought, there we go. That's a good thing we did. Let's on to the next thing. And little did I know that he told every kid in his neighborhood and every kid who was near my house, uh, there's a guy with tools and he's willing to show you. Let's all bring our broken bikes. He's got some other broke stuff. And then neighbors started to see all these kids showing up. And instead of it causing too much alarm, they actually said, hey, I got a broken bike. You could take it and you can fix it with one of the kids. (laughs) So then my yard is overwhelmed with bikes and kids. And I have a landlord who's ready to kick me out. And we realize we have this beautiful, amazing energy by these talented young people that have been overlooked, have been under-engaged, underutilized, have been kind of maybe forgotten about and maybe thought more of as a liability than a resource for our community. And we tapped into something special. And that just told us we have to do more with this. We have to leverage this experience into an opportunity for these amazing kids. Um, so that started us out in that yard. I was working with kids while I was doing AmeriCorps. I got my master's in teaching at LSU, began to teach middle school. And all the while, we're working with kids, all the free time, trying to develop this program. We got into a warehouse that had no electricity to running water. It was not like we selected the one place we wanted to be. It was like, this is a spot where we're being welcomed and can get keys to lock things. Um, but then from there... Things kept catching on like wildfire. You know, we had a news article by uh, our our newspaper out here in Baton Rouge that ran a news story about us. From there, we got attention at the university for their TEDx series. TEDx LSU called and said, we want you to talk about this on stage for just a few short minutes really quickly and tell us something. We did that. And from there, there were donors and people looking for this innovation and saying, we want to invest financial support for it to become a full time. So four years, fast forward of volunteering and working and just trying to keep it afloat. We get our first real investment that allows me to become the full time executive director. And the same kids get to now see that program go from just being a pop up in a yard to now being at a park partnership with our Parks and Rec Department, Breck here in Baton Rouge, and getting to see this pilot, this concept come to fruition. That's awesome. And that's truly bottom up. I, I don't think you could get more bottom up than that. <laughs> it's not more grassroots. When you hear grassroots nonprofit, it's front yeah. yard bikes. It's on the yards, on the grass. <laughs> oh, um, just something that stood out to me. Two things that stood out to me is um, I... I love how your neighbors kind of got in on it and they were like, because I feel like in so many cities around the country, neighbors could get super annoyed and call the city and, you know, be so concerned about neighborhood vibe. They don't, but it sounds like your neighbors could kind of see what was happening. And uh, I just think that's one of, that's one of those ingredients that can really help um, these types of efforts go a long way. And then what you're saying about young people being seen as a um, asset, not a liability. I I can imagine as a teacher, that's something that you saw all the time. No, absolutely. You know, there was some kids going through really tough situations and it was kind of like, well, just keep them in the classroom, you know, but they got way more going on, you know, and we weren't able to address those different needs um, because we got to get through a curriculum. Uh, 
I kind of got to cheat, step away from the classroom. And then when those things come up, we do get to stop. We do get to check in. We do get to see what's going on in your personal life and your mental health and your personal health and your family that maybe we can address that's beyond all this fun stuff of bikes and gardening and cooking and welding and all, all these unique things that um, while we love them, they're just the things we do to build community with each other. They're kind of the distraction for the relationships to happen. Right. Yeah. And it, it's also just a good reminder that um, young people, the young adults and the young people in our communities, they need investment, right? I think cities so often think of investment as this business transaction only for, you know, small businesses or to attract some big jobs. I don't know, corporation or so, you know, someone's going to, that's going to save the city by bringing in a lot of jobs. But I think what you're demonstrating is you're just kind of reminding us of like, Hey, your next generation needs investment too. <laughs> like you have this amazing asset that you can be cultivating and, and equipping and thinking about your city. What, what would change if we thought about as part of our economic development plans, like, Hey, what are we doing for the youth? What are we doing to, to set them up for success and to give them an incentive to even consider staying here, staying in the city that they've lived in or grown up in? Exactly. And, and realizing, because I hear this a lot and it's kind of a, a, a bad word around us, is that youth have potential, meaning that someday down the line, they're going to be really helpful to give back. And I kind of kick against that and say, no, 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 they have a great value right now, right where they are right now to be contributors to make our world and community better today. Um, by that standard, they're worthwhile today in this moment to be engaged, to be poured into, to be invested in because the return is going to be immediate, not a someday down the line. If we do these things, young people will contribute to, you know, what we need in our society to be successful. No, they contribute right now because they're in control of so many things of their school culture, our community culture, and, and really the, the mentality of their peers to consider the opportunities that are around them. So we try to, really press and navigate on this ideal of our youth are worth it, our youth matter. They, and, and investing means we know there's going to be a return and not in the long run. In the short run, there'll be a return in which they help out and contribute and they feel the ownership of that. It's way more powerful that our kids feel like they own the program and own the spaces because in that scenario, they get to then write those successes for them for themselves. See, I, we, I'm a part of that success. I made some of this happen. So that means, man, I'm worthwhile. So I do need to take on these opportunities. I do need to, you know, go the yeah. distance. Yeah, exactly. So tell, continue the story about Front Yard Bikes. You have the TED Talk. How is the? How, how have y'all grown since then? What, what else have y'all taken on? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we really saw that there was a continuing need to grow the program for more engagement of kids, you know, a lot of kids who come to our program are looking to engage and earn a bike, which means they're going to select a bike that's in disrepair. There's hours to put into it. it. It ranges from anywhere from three to eight hours. It's very individualized. They do the basic mechanics to get it up and running or sometimes even complicated mechanics to get it up and running. And then they have to participate in the garden or in our welding program. We have a tutoring program. They have to contribute to the inventory or to uh, managing some of the infrastructure for the shop, some, sometimes putting up racks, putting up hooks, uh, helping out in different spaces, painting, cleaning, organizing, whatever it may be to get their hours to then be paid in full for the bike they receive. 
And after that, they get to continue to come to participate in all the other programs because now they have the transportation to keep coming to and from independently and not needing uh, really a, a bus or a family member or anybody to drop them off. They actually have a free mode of transportation to increase that mobility and that, and that radius of opportunity of how far they could walk to get a resource is now magnified by how far they could bike to access those things from after school jobs to education, to tutoring programs, to groceries, to uh, libraries, parks, museums. Now they have so much more to get into and sustain that through participation with our program. So we saw the needs for all these diversity of experiences because we want more of our kids to get that. And as we saw a massive impact of kids, we saw, well, we need to have more staff on hand. Well, who would be the best pool to hire from? We tried to get a number of adults and different individuals and realized hiring our students for after-school jobs made the most sense. So we started an after-school internship program where between 15 to 20 kids after school could have an after-school job, pay you know a, a better wage, maintain that their academics, enrollment in school, and family and home life was you know still balanced, still healthy, and have an income that is supportive. So there isn't this kind of pull. We, we kind of have this issue of our kids being pulled from school as soon as possible so they can go into work and sometimes fast food industry or low-paying job industries that don't really have a very high ceiling of opportunity afterwards for them to have a family. So this kind of kept our kids a little closer, saw more kids graduate high school and have this on their resume to be attractive applicants for higher wage, high demand jobs. So that kind of was an, a really exciting aspect, but it kind of wouldn't stop because then we had so many adults who wanted us to repair their bikes and sell them bikes. And that got to a point where we needed to have our own retail bike shop, full service, full repair and sales. And who better to run that shop than the students who've been growing up in our program. So we bought a bike shop and expanded it to a 10,000 square foot old church building that we renovated into being a bike shop along with a number of other programs we're hoping to include. And that kind of brought us full circle from being the, let's take any bike we can get that someone will give us to now we can kind of buy and own a lot of things that we would like to have. And being a community owned program, that's our kids who own that. That's our kids who own those spaces and own these things. And it's leveraged us from a, a small yard that we are renting and pleading to stay into a big giant facility that we have a long-term future. And what's even like more valuable is what you're teaching the kids about, um, like what they're seeing is is how you can build something from from a little bit and then build it gradually over time, right? To something that's really valuable and something that's incremental. But just this whole concept, kind of what you were saying about they could go get the fast food job, but they're not going to have ownership. That's not going to give them ownership into the community, right? Um, and so it's not, what y'all have created just sounds like really holistic, just this really holistic holistic ecosystem where you know the kid walks through that door and a couple years later like they're not just leaving to go do something else right they're able to invest right back and make and continue to grow the ecosystem and enrich the ecosystem and make it even better for the next kids that are coming in exactly and i think it's a different model from programs that want to take kids in who maybe are, are lacking certain skills or lacking certain resources or knowledge they go through the program and then the student is better off and the credit of the student and their well-being is to well they went through this program 
well, we're different in a way of this program is having these opportunities, these developments, and it's a credit to the kids and our youth that came that it exists at all. So any good thing that happened is an affirmation of the work that you did, that it mattered and that you matter and that you're the reason for any of these successes. So there's ownership in that and a pride in that, that then helps our kids to realize I can keep learning, growing and building. I can keep doing this and probably take it to different places than, you know, where their experiences with us, they may go so far off. And we've seen some of our students go to college and be studying something totally different than what they got here at the shop. But that's the point. It's that dreaming, that ingenuity, and that first investment of realizing, wow, you know, I'm worthwhile. Someone believes in me. I've heard something different about me today. And I bet it's true. Maybe I should take this on and, and really keep delving into it. And what better way to learn that than to see yourself be able to fix something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't you imagine like something being more like exciting than to watch a young person like be able to fix something with their hands, which is exactly. just like a skill that's going extinct these days. It's roadside trash to somebody. You transform it into something that's a mode of transportation and movement. And you get to enjoy that experience, that kind of, you know, those endorphins of fun that you're like, oh, this is fun. This is riding and realize it's an testament to you. You did that. And it's a it's it's a short spurt of time that you need to do that. But once you get it, it kind of becomes a little bit like, man, what can't I do? Right. Exactly. It's so transferable to other realms of life, that that mindset. So I I feel like we've kind of already touched on this, but if you, I would just like to give you a chance to kind of articulate what are some of the values that shape front yard bikes and that you're really trying to pass on to your, to your, to the kids that you work with. If you had to say like your top three values. You know, we have uh, our values of, We have shop expectations every day that we kind of model every day. Number one is to respect everybody. And uh, another one is to um, be willing to listen and help. You know, our last one is we we don't blame tools or or people trying to help us. We don't get mad and frustrated with those around us or the things that we have because we realize we're problem solvers. We're the solution to the challenge and that we can come together and, and get this done. And while we have all these expectations of things you do and things of how we talk, how we treat each other and all these different degrees of kindness, there's a reason why all those things are being asked of us. And it's not because we don't know how to do it. It's not because no one ever told us how to do it, taught us how to do it. We want our students to realize that they can do it because it's who they are, that they're amazing that they're capable, that they're the dreamers, builders, that it is in their nature to do these things. So we're asking them to bring their natural gifts and talents to the surface. Uh, we just say, look, this, this is who God made you. I, I can't help you that you're amazing. I, I didn't make it. I didn't, and I, Maybe I can look at you and I can see it. I can recognize it. But the truth of it is that you put your hand to do it, which is a credit to must be who you are, that you are an artist or that you're a mechanic or that You're somebody who can lend a hand and help somebody. Maybe you're a leader or maybe you're the person who hears what needs to be done and you're a go-getter. All these things evolve for our kids to learn about who they are so that they can take on those identities and walk in them in any other spaces they go to. Far too often, the first time an adult talks to kids in certain spaces is to let them know what's wrong, where they messed up, where they made mistakes. It happens all too frequently in our instruction 
Whereas we think when they did the right thing or they're doing well, well, that's what you're supposed to do. So in those moments, we don't say anything. And the moments that we're failing and struggling is when we're talking to you and really putting a lot of pressure on you. By that standard, most of our kids, that's the only time they're really hearing from us instead of hearing the affirmations. So we have a student come to the program on time. We know they're timely. That's who they are. The first time they're not on time, that's an opposition to who they are. It's not a description of, well, you're always late because you've been late once or twice. Or you stole something once, so you must be a thief. And you're always going to be a thief. When do you ever stop being a thief? When does that ever get to get lifted from your identity of how we treat you and talk to you? You lied once. You're a liar. And that's how we're going to treat you. But you were great 10 out of 10 times. And we said, well, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Where yes, is it's that? Really, really giving them a vision of, of um, personal development, not just personal development, but helping them think about that, that, that idea of character and the idea of like, what kind of person do I want to be in the world? And realize that's something that just like they're fixing those bikes, they can character is something that can be built too. It's almost, you know, it's almost like a transferable lesson there. It, like the same way that you can build something with you, like who you are as a person, the character that you bring into the world. That's something that you can have as much like intention about in the same, in, in, in a similar way. Precisely. We want our kids to identify with everything that's good about them and know that the things that aren't working out, those are our challenges. Those are the problems to be solved. But those don't begin to identify us until we give up and realize I'm just a problem child. I'm just an issue. I'm just nobody. That's never going to be in our language. It's never going to be in how we treat each other. And our kids have to get that in their in their mind so they can then believe in the opportunities that are in front of them that they can take them and do them. And we're trying to fortify that positive identity over and over again with more and more affirmations. Um, even the summer, the most fun thing is when we do badges where the kids are getting badges of like things that they do and know that these are actual affirmation that I did this and a recognition of the good that I did. And yeah, we, we all make mistakes and mess up, but we don't let it identify us and, and steal I, away our future and our opportunities. And I can imagine too, um, growing up in, in a city that's struggling. I mean, I know all cities are struggling, but kind of what I know about Baton Rouge with the high poverty rate, the high murder rates, like I can imagine that this is just in, even more powerful for young adults to have this counter narrative if you've grown up in a poor city if you've grown up with low connection to opportunity if you've grown up seeing a lot of violence um, that hearing messages like this is just even more valuable and powerful to them to give them a vision of what they can become despite those circumstances i mean yeah we're fighting that narrative that well you grew up in you know uh community with a lot of crime and issues and murder rates and all this stuff. So you're a product of your environment. You're a product of maybe what's happening in a household. You're a product of the school that you're in and its performance. And so that's going to dictate everything. So kids start to give up because that's the narrative. How can you ever break out of that? But if there's a possibility that you're worthwhile and that you have an inherent intrinsic worth that is unique and beautiful, and that every time you show up and lend a hand, it's a testament of you. Let's let's delve into that. Let's build that to fortify us from these challenges. And all the time, people marvel when you see, uh, I have a wonderful lady who has a beautiful garden at her house. 
And sometimes seeds fall in the cracks of her sidewalk or in the cracks of her house walls, and they start to grow there. And they're not supposed to grow in those environments. They're, they're not supposed to flourish and blossom and be these beautiful flowers. And we realize that's what we're seeing with our students and our kids. And sometimes people make the mistake and they say, well, that's because the time you're spending, Dustin. And I say, oh, no, no, no. They, they, oh, that's always who they were. I just got a chance to recognize it and sprinkle maybe a little bit of water and a little bit of sunshine. Help cultivate it. Help bring it out. Just, just a little bit. Don't get, don't, that doesn't make it happen. It's still up <laughs> to plant. I promise you, I can plant all those tomato seeds in our garden. I cannot tell you if they'll put tomatoes on the vine. I can't. I don't know. I hope. I do everything I can that happens. But truth be told, it's up to the plant. They'll produce it. And that's the same with our students. They'll produce. We'll do everything we can on our end. And that's what I like to ask you know, a lot of people to do when they work with young people. Make as much as you can the environment, the resources, pour in the affirmations of, of who our kids are and let them grow and give them credit. Give them credit when they do so they can feel like, I think I'll keep doing this. I'll keep, I'll keep on this growing pattern, trajectory. Yeah. So, so you all are giving them this space. It's really valuable to notice how you're taking, like, I think you said this earlier, how you're taking these uh, opportunities to teach them gardening, welding, bike repair. Those are creating this space to have these uh, more complex conversations about character, about trajectory, about mindset, right? Uh, and also to build relationships and to and to talk about talk about real life. Um, but then they they get to have a bike, which is the actual tangible one of the tangible results, one of the tangible takeaways, if you were, of being part of front yard bikes. I think you mentioned you grew up with bikes, and so I'm assuming you must love biking. Just just going on a limb here. <laughs> I love it. I've never gotten off a bike ride going from A to B and been mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been like, man, I, I wish I would have drove, you know, <laughs> I regret not getting in a car. And I mean, I, and, and you may say I'm a nut. doesn't matter if it's cold, rainy, doesn't matter. Uh, I feel healthier, happier, just feel good that I was like, man, I enjoyed this journey. I felt more connected to everybody around me, every sound, every movement. And, uh, it was fun. So and, yeah, so, so you're handing that off to young adults as well, which for them is, has a really practical benefit because as you were saying earlier, this can prove to be a vehicle of opportunity. Um, what would you say um, if you could talk to people in your city, like, you know, who are, who are thinking about the future of the city, even thinking about infrastructure or even or, or transportation, uh, what do you wish they understood about the benefits of biking, especially for young people? That it is a mode of opportunity. It is uh, mobility for increasing that radius of where someone can get to. You know, there's a lot of conversations we have about what resources are within a 10 minute walk. And we're trying to identify in city planning about parks and libraries and um, other resources for groceries and food and a lot of these things. And I say, well, what's within a 10 minute bike ride? A lot more, so much more. And our kids deserve those access to get there. And really, I grew up one of five kids. There was not a car for me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the fourth. I'm the fourth of five. There wasn't a car right when you turned 16 or 17, 18. That's sitting there for you to immediately, you know, drive off. When I had to go to my first job working at a grocery store, it was buy a bike. When we had to go to school, me and my brother and my sisters were off at college. We went buy a bike for a period of time. And it was a lot further in home in Louisiana than Baton Rouge, not as much of a city out there than it is here. So all of our kids, what I'd want to tell our city leaders 
the infrastructure that we're going to build is for opportunities to get places. And by getting places, you increase that for some that need it the most, individuals who don't have access but can get it uh, simply by getting on a bike and pedaling there. But not, and, and not just the job, but just but even even if they're young adults who aren't necessarily looking for a job right now, even having that bike frees up their sense of agency, right? And kind of creates this virtuous cycle of when they feel like their city is designed in a way to allow them to explore and to go places and to um, discover new things that they didn't know they were interested in. Like that just creates like a, I think that's just something really positive that happens when cities take the time to think about how can we make it possible for young adults to have a bit more agency and a bit more um a bit more freedom. I mean, even this past week, I was hanging out with family, my husband's family. There are a couple of teenagers in the group and we tried taking a walk around the neighborhood. I have a newborn. He's like nine weeks. And so I was like, oh, let's take him for a walk. It'll help him fall asleep. And it was crazy within like 10 minutes. I mean, the sidewalks were in such bad shape. We had massive picking pickup trucks like parked in such a way that we had to keep pushing the stroller into the street to get around them. There was no coffee shop in walking distance. There were so many times the sidewalks completely disappeared. And then there were like dogs you had to worry about that neighbors don't keep on their leash, right? So we're like walking around with this like dog deterrent. Like everyone has like a job. <laughs> One person's going to see if there's sidewalks. Other girls were trying to t- like look up on their phone if there was a cafe we could even walk to. You know, we, we gave up. We ended up piling into the car and driving 15 minutes to a walkable part of the city so they could just goof around, you know, like the way teenagers do. But it's like think about, think about stuff like that, right? Um, it shouldn't be the case that teenagers – can't just go for a walk or a bike ride around their neighborhood and discover discover what there is for what what their city has to offer for them. Um, and I, I think it really does something in terms of cultivating a sense of buy-in and in a sense of like uh, of belonging to this place. Precisely, and believing you can navigate it and that you can access the things that are you know that are around you is is big for us. And I know that's a uh, Difference on a bike. You need to just come. We need to get you guys on some bikes out there. Figure it out. Make some oh, I have stuff. one. I I biked. So the f- uh, second neighborhood I lived in in Waco, I biked all the time. I've never owned a car since. Oof, I can't remember the last time I owned a car. Um, so I drive more now because of the baby and because uh, where we live, uh, it's low key suicidal <laughs> to try to bike to any of the parts of town that I would spend time in. Um, but yeah, you don't have to convince me. I have my French motor bacane in the garage, just waiting, waiting for a new a ride soon. <laughs> um, that's, that's it. And waiting for my little one to get safe enough to strap him onto a cargo bike and go for some fun adventures. Um, so, so what's next for front yard bikes? Well, you know, we've obviously seen, um, Last year, we saw 406 kids in all of our different spaces come through our shop. We've historically seen over 3,000 kids. Um, we've built over 11,000 bikes, and we had 200 and uh, I think 15 built last year. Um, we've had interns. We had 33 interns. We've had a lot of good welding classes, gardening classes, cooking classes. What we're looking to do is continue to increase the availability of these job experiences as internships for kids. So our big 10,000 square foot building that we're investing in, we're trying to 
diversify experiences even more by bringing on other nonprofits as collaborators who already have different provisions of what they do. We have an amazing barbershop literacy program that reads books while kids get haircuts called Line for Line. We have Humanities Amp that loves to do action research about social justice, who also does uh, recording and sound and also does spoken word and poetry. We have the Big Buddy program that does mentorship and likes to do uh, cooking classes and, and really entrepreneurship that they kind of invest in with a lot of different business owners. So we're pulling them into our spaces and trying to make more jobs for a lot more kids to then gain this concrete experience that leverages them into careers. And I think that big building is our future of being able to make that conduit. We have our park that we're always going to be operating with kids at. That's not going away, but we need to have spaces to feed our kids into so that growing and development trajectory. I say this a lot lately. I say to some of the kids and or a lot of adult staff, too. Eventually, you got to get transplanted to keep growing. You can't stay in the tray. You can't stay in a pot that can find your roots. And if we have the power to give you bigger ground and bigger space and more nutrients, then we need to make sure we move you around so that happens. Um, You can't fault the plant for wilting in that space. And you can't fault the space that can't change its confinement, can't change its size. It's stuck. So we need to make the spaces a little bit bigger and have those different rooms to get into. So that's kind of how we're evolving and developing this, these feeders and opportunities. That's so exciting. Um, so if someone was coming through Baton Rouge for a few hours, this is the last question and one of my favorite questions to ask, um, where should they go to get a, a slice of local culture? Do you have like favorite coffee shops or favorite bike routes or restaurants that you like to recommend? Absolutely. Of course, course we should come by Front Yard Bikes. You come by Front Yard Bikes first and you hop on a bike and say, (laughs) I'm taking an extended test ride and you ride (laughs) down uh, Government Street with our bike lanes over here, which is we're the only bike shop on a bike lane. I'm pretty proud of that in the entire town. So you can immediately get on a bike and go down the lane. And, you know, you got to go test, you know, really test a great bike and then enjoy some of the great food near us. Best coffee shops that I would say bike to because they're worth it are Highland Coffee Shop on Highland Road and uh, City Roots, which is fantastic. It's over at the Electric Depot. I think those two are really good. Um, as far as something really good to eat, if you love ramen, Chow Yum Fat is the best. You got to get ramen over there. But if you're kind of on the lighter side and you just want something simple, French Truck Coffee, they're out of New Orleans, but we, we accept them here. They're accepted because they're good. They're good. French truck coffee is a great eatery with a lot of good things and some good coffee too. But I try to I try to get the other the other local ones a shot before I go to French truck, even though it's fantastic. Just to be clear, that was French truck. Yep, French, French truck, truck coffee. coffee. Awesome. I gave them the shout out for food because the other two need the coffee shout out. Awesome. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us, to talk to us about Front Yard Bikes. I'm looking forward to keeping tabs on on where y'all continue to, to go and how you continue to grow. Um, and I, I hope that um, the, the, the leaders in your community can really uh, see what y'all are doing and, and recognize the value of investing in bike infrastructure and really see it as the bridge to opportunity that, that, that bike lanes and that bikes can be for those who really need it, including young people. Yeah, if, if our listeners want to learn more, what's the best way to do that? They should definitely go to frontyardbikes.com. It has some great stories and videos about us. They can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Front Yard Bikes. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution. I will put links to Front Yard Bikes as well as the businesses that uh, he recommended. And if you have someone that you think would make a great guest for the show, please nominate them using the suggested guest form, which will also be listed in the show notes. Uh, Thanks so much and see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm.